0: Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning thankful for all the blessings that you have bestowed upon us. We are so grateful. Lord, we are blessed beyond what we deserve. You, Father, have showered your blessing upon us. No more so than when you sent your son, your one and only son, to come to this earth, to give himself as the sacrifice for our sins. You sent him to show us your heart. You sent him to show us the way to your heart. And it's not through power and control or moral purity through humility and honesty through grace and sacrifice and love forgiveness and gratitude help us heavenly father to have your heart help us to follow your son's example and revealing to others your heart. Do the same way He did it in loving, in touching, and embracing, and forgiving, and serving, and washing feet, and blessing children, <laughs> in breaking bread, in story in time, through healing touch and prayer. Lord, help us to be the people that Jesus called us to be, that your light will shine in this world through us, drawing those out of darkness and into the light. And Lord, as we come this morning, every one of us has our own stuff. Things that are weighing us down, the sins that are causing us to stumble, the grief that clouds our joy, weariness just from walking through this world day by day, We have strife and conflict. We have needs, places where we don't trust. So just Lord, I pray that this morning we can honestly bring all of that to you and that we can cast all of our cares on you knowing that you care for us. So Lord, may your Holy Spirit's peace and power work in each of our hearts this morning, that we may feel you, your presence transforming us into the people you want us to be. And together, we will pray the prayer that you taught us to pray. And if you don't know the words, they'll be on the screen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated.
1: we on? All right. I got to see Tom's notes up here. That's kind of (laughs) cool. I'm going to be reading from the Gospel of Luke starting in verse 15, or excuse me, chapter 15, verse 11, and then I'm going to pass it to Rose, who's going to read the Gospel of John, chapter 14, familiar portion of Scripture here starting in verse 11. And he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me and he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine and he would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, "'How many hired servants of my father's house "'have bread enough and to spare, "'and I perish with hunger? "'I will rise and go to my father, "'and I'll say to him, "'Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, "'and I'm no more worthy to be called thy son, Make me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but he was yet a great way off. His father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no more worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe. Put it on him and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat, and be merry. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants, and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him safe and sound. And he was angry, and he would not go in, Therefore, his father came out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years did I serve you, neither did I transgress at any time your commandment, and yet you never gave me a calf that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as your son, which was come, has devoured thy living with harlots, you have killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, you're forever with me and all that I have is yours. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this, your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost, and now he's found. You know the way to where I am going. Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Lord, said Philip, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been among you all this time, and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I speak to I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works.
0: Thank you. Thank you both. I've mentioned uh, many times that as part of my, my uh, vocation during the week, I do a lot of coaching, uh, I've coached. It, specifically in the areas of, of helping people grow as, in their skills as a manager, um, uh, in, at work, also in the areas of customer service. I coached hundreds, thousands of people uh, over the years. And one of the things that I often will start with when I'm coaching somebody for the first time is I will ask people to give me their own self-assessment before I even say anything. I'll just say, give me your own self-assessment. What are your strengths? What are the good things you bring to your work or to your, your job? And then what are the things that are, are struggles for you or areas that you have opportunities to improve? And I've, I typically always ask this question because the answers tell me a lot. <laughs> because, you know, most people will kind of, um, uh, they'll take a second, and a lot of people, uh, honestly, are thrown by the question, because I find many people don't even take the time to be introspective, to even think about what do I do well, where are my areas of struggle. We just kind of go through the paces every day. Um, others will, will, will struggle, and they'll kind of say some things, because they know they know what their struggles are because they get their own employee evaluations. They can remember what their boss wants them to work on, the things that they have opportunities to improve, but they don't always want to tell me that. Why? Again, there's, there's fear, right? I, I, I want to guard your perception of me, they would, they would say, or... Um, I wanna make sure that I put my best foot forward so that I look good in your eyes. Uh, And then occasionally, and these are my favorite, it doesn't happen a lot, but occasionally you get the person who goes, I'm good at everything. What do you need to work on? Nothing. And I'm going, okay, we got an issue here. And then there are other people that I'll say, well, what are the things that you do well and what do you need to work on? And they will give me a laundry list of things they need to work on. Oh my gosh, I'm so awful at this and I'm awful at this and I can't do this and I'm, I'm a terrible employee and I do this and, this and this and this and this. And then I'm like, by the time they're done, I'm like going, oh my gosh, is there anything? What are your strengths? What do you do well? I don't know, nothing. That's a different issue. So as it comes morning, I want us to think about our own spiritual take. If, if Jesus sat down with you and said, All right, tell me the things you do, you're doing well, the things are going good, and I want you then to share with me the, the places that you're really struggling spiritually. What are the sins that you're struggling with? What are the the places that you're you know you've got to work on? What would our response be? You know, I uh, I spent five years in pastoral ministry. I was just sharing this with with some people last night, and um, people will often ask, uh, especially because I, I still continue to preach and teach and do all sorts of things, but they asked why I left pastoral ministry and went to what I would consider my vocational ministry. Um, and one of them was, as I was a pastor and as a young pastor, uh, I was a young man, and there was a lot in life that I was struggling with. So here's the, here's the story. I'm, I'm pastoring a church, and a lady comes up to me after BBS and says, oh, I got to share this story. I said, What? She said, this little girl, we were talking about sin in VBS, and a little girl raised her hand, and she she said, Ms. Van Zylen, does Pastor Tom sin? And she goes, well, yes, he does. Everyone sins. And she goes, well, what does he do? But that's the question, isn't it? And one of the things that I struggled with as a young man, as I was growing in my own, on my own spiritual journey, is one of the things that I struggled with is because I felt like I had to be perfect. I felt like I couldn't have any faults. I couldn't, I couldn't actually admit my own sins to anyone. Why? Because everyone expected me to be the example. And while we can say, oh yes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, let's be honest. When it comes to actually talking about the stuff inside that is holding us back, the the things where we have failed, and in many places, when it comes to the brokenness that may not even be our fault. We might be the victim of somebody else, but the shame and the pain and the brokenness is so great that we just, we don't know how to get it out. And so, as we go into the Lenten season, we're beginning... A, uh, we're beginning a series here in the Lenten series where we're gonna, we're gonna really push into our need for what happens on Good Friday <laughs> and on Easter Sunday. And it begins with this whole idea of confession. So let's unpack it real quick. Uh, history lesson. So for the first 1,500 years of Christianity, there was basically um, you know, one big, in the Western world, there was one big church, that, and it was the Roman Catholic Church. And it, for 1,500 years, confession was a part of corporate worship. It was part of the whole thing of being a, a Christian. And in the Roman tradition, um, Roman Catholic tradition, you would go to the confessional, and we have a lot of people that were raised Catholic, you, you experience this, you go into the little booth there, and on the other side of the booth, uh, it, by a partition, is the priest, and you confess your sins to the priest uh, in the little confessional, and then the priest would, uh, gives you a uh, something to do in order to kind of pay for your sins. And in the Catholic tradition, that might be praying, saying the Lord's Prayer a number of times, or doing, you know, whatever it is the priest tells you to do. But then the priest absolves you of your sins, says you're forgiven, and you go out, and then you come back and you do that, and you do that over and over and over again. Now, the thing that I want to recognize is that confession became a part of the tradition because it is an important piece of the spiritual journey. And that has never changed. But what happened when Martin Luther started the Protestant Reformation, one of the things over time that happened with the confessional is that, one, there was it, be, it became a thing where the the forgiveness and the absolution comes only through your local priest. And so it kind of directed that there is one, there's an intercessor between you and Jesus, and that is your priest. Um, And the second thing is people began to come ritually to confession i go into the booth and say, all right, yep, I did it again, blah, 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 i go through the list, and the priest would go, okay, say, a couple of our fathers, you're absolved, okay, we step out. But nothing changed. It became a ritual, but there was no spiritual progress. And as long as I go to confession and I get absolved, I know that I'm going to go to heaven if I die today, but that was never the point. So in the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther and Calvin and Knox and the boys said, wait a minute, time out. Number one, the scripture says that we are a priesthood of all believers. There's a priesthood. We are a royal priesthood, and we've talked about that in the auditorium. So instead of there being like one pastor or priest through which everything gets absolved, no, 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 no. We are all part of the priesthood. We, can, we are all part of the process of confessing to one another and sharing with one another and forgiving one another and offering grace to one another. So in the Protestant Reformation saying this, this ritual process isn't necessary. Okay, but here's the problem. We did away, we threw the baby out with the theological bathwater. And through the Protestant tradition over the last five, six hundred years, we have lost confession as a part of the spiritual journey. How many times, those of you who are Protestants who grew raised in the Protestant church, and I don't care what flavor, how many times have you heard a message about confession? How many times in your Sunday school classes or in your, in your experience have you been encouraged to make confession a part of your spiritual life? I'll bet you it's not often. So, a couple of words. Let's get the nomenclature right, okay? Confession. Confession is the act or process of talking about one's failures or struggles or sins. It's the act or the process. Where I sit down with someone and say, dude, I'm really struggling. Um, And here's what's going on in my life. Contrition is a different word. And contrition means the deep sorrow, the repentance for sin, knowing that it's displeasing to God. Contrition is humble penitence through repentance. I want to make a change. I want to deal with this thing that is holding me back. I need to tell someone what happened to me so that I can move forward in my spiritual life. So what was happening before the Protestant Reformation is, People were coming to confession, but there was no contrition. What I find in the Protestant church and in my own experiences is that often there is contrition, but the contrition happens in the silence of my own heart and life. And, I, and I'm sorry, and I'm repentant, and I'm ashamed of my sins, and I want to make a change, but I never confess it. See, they work together. Because if I am contrite, but I don't confess, then the sin continues to spin in the darkness of my soul. And if I don't, see, confession exposes it to the light. And now, all of a sudden, I have said, hey, I am struggling with this. I need to share this. This is a piece of my brokenness that I need to share. It's bringing it out into the light and it is immediately creating an environment in which I, I can let it go, I can have some accountability, it begins to lose its power because darkness empowers sin. It empowers brokenness. It empowers shame. Confession brings it down to the light where it begins to lose its power and where I can go, okay, maybe this I can deal with this once and for all, and I'm not alone. I have others in the body of Christ who can walk with me and help me, and help me move forward and make some progress of leaving old things behind and having new things come. See, as a young pastor, I had all sorts of contrition, because I knew my sins. But I didn't have confession because I was so afraid of admitting that I was struggling in any way. Because why? Because I'm the pastor. I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to be perfect for people. And I knew in my heart that that it was a recipe for spiritual death. So I left the pastorate. And I'll let me, my own story. Um, it took me about 10 years, about 10 years to understand how confession, how embracing my own sinfulness, about not being ashamed of it, but getting it out and dealing with it and working on it and, and talking to, to safe, in safe places with knowledgeable uh, mentors and elders who could help me figure it out, and move forward. It didn't happen once. It was a process and a progress. So why is it important? Because if we are going to be the people of God that, that are going to do this mission that Christ has given us, we have to once again embrace our own sinfulness. Because again to you folks, the reason that there is so much anger against the church in the world today and why people are leaving it in droves and while there is so much criticism and there are people around saying that, that Christianity is the worst thing that ever happened to humanity and there are people saying that. There are others that are calling for the, to kill all the Christians because we're so bad for the world. Well, why are they saying that? Well, I think in a large part because institutional Christianity has not been good at exemplifying who Jesus was and what he said and what he taught. See, everyone knows, I think the world knows that they struggle, but all they felt from the institutional Christianity is Judgment and condemnation from a bunch of people who proclaim moral purity and then find out that they're all hypocrites. When we have a, in our own circles of influence, like, going, look, man, you have no idea what I've been through. I mean, I, let me tell you about my own struggles with with addiction and when I committed adultery and when my marriage fell apart. And yet, over time, God has done this work of redemption and grace in my life. So I I don't have any room to judge anybody. I don't have any room to condemn anybody. Look, I get it. So let me tell you about Jesus and his grace, his amazing grace, no matter what has happened to you, no matter what you have done. And let me tell you about a God who wants to restore you, no matter how lost you might be. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says, if we confess with our hearts Jesus is Lord, or we confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord, believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. But here's the thing. It's real easy to stand up in a profession of faith, young people, and go, yes, I believe. We probably a lot of us adults did that as kids. Went to confirmation class. Said, I believe. Confess with my mouth. All right, I'm done. But that's not right. Because if you confess with your mouth, Christ Jesus is what? Lord. Lord, Greek word kurios, which means somebody to whom you submit. So if, if, I, if he is my Lord, I am going to submit to him, and I am going to my life, my words, my actions, my relationships, my money, all of it is going to be submitted to what my Lord wants from me. So, really, if I truly believe with my heart that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord, well, that's going to lead to a head that bows and to knees that bend. That's the way it's supposed to work. So understand this. Contrition, I'm sorrowful. I feel bad. I'm I'm repentant. I want to change some things that I know are wrong in in here and in my life. Leads to the confession where I take that and the process by which I tell somebody, I share that with somebody else. And that then leads to my submission. See, yeah, gonna keep going, let's keep going. All right, real quick. So let's pull this back into perspective. Contrition leads to confession, which leads to submission. Now, four levels we've talked about here in the auditorium at the auditorium family. Top to bottom, level four, kingdom of God. And what God's kingdom wants to do is to bring shalom, peace. He, he desires to restore a sinful person and a sinful world into relationship with him. He doesn't, you don't wanna come, Christ didn't come to condemn the world, John three seventeen. He came to save it. How is he gonna save it? Through servant-heartedness, through submission, Philippians 2, he came down to show us the Father, and that we would change our life, so that we would change our circles of influence so that we might change the kingdoms of this world. And what we might be the agents of Shalom. So, but the way the world operates is power top down. So the kingdoms of this world tell us what to do. Uh, we do it and then, then we kind of, we all kind of follow what we're, we're told to do by the powers that control our lives. What Jesus said is, no, you submit, like Jesus did, as you submit and follow Jesus' example, you begin to change. So, are the uh, the, the, uh, kingdoms of this world level, level three, the greatest enemy to God's kingdom is human empire. Throughout the history, Humans have been trying to create empire. Yeah, we try and create an empire by which we control things. We control people. We control populations. We control area. Um, Putin is building his empire. In China, they want to be an empire, control more and more. In America, we have our own empire. And let's be honest about that. The United States is an empire of this world. And the people who run the United States have their own empires (laughs) that they are building. That's part of the human condition. Down at level one, the enemy to God's kingdom is my willful control of my own life. I want to do what I want to do. I wanna do what I think, what I want, what I, how I control. There are things that I need. So now we get to the prodigal son. And let's be honest that there are some of us in this room, I know a lot of your stories, you know my story. There are many in this room who have experienced pig slop in this life, right? I found myself, uh, you know, again, my life had fallen apart, I'd blown it, committed adultery. Yeah, my marriage was a shambles. I found myself in the waiting and pig slap of this world. And it was a huge piece of me like going, I need to change. So many of us have had that experience, and we understand the grace of having been restored from a real pig slap experience in life, or many of them. But what if life is manageable? The first step of the 12 steps is we we came to admit that we were powerless over alcohol or drugs or porn or sex or whatever, name your poison. We were powerless over it and our lives had become unmanageable. That's the pig's block experience. I found myself through my own choices in a place where life has become unmanageable, and I've got to figure it out. That often spurs the contrition, and the confession, and the progress. But what if life is manageable? What if I manage my life really pretty well? Do I really need a savior? Do I need to confess? I find that most people manage life really well. And it allows them to compartmentalize spiritual things. Because I manage, I manage my life really well, and then I've kind of got, a part of that management is I do my religious ritual. I do my religious routine. It's part of my, the management of my own life. And in doing that, I can avoid admitting or owning my own shortcomings, because as far as everyone else thinks of me and sees me, they see I've got it together. So I really don't need to admit anything. I don't need to confess anything. I can continue to perpetuate a crafted image that I am in control, I am mature, I am capable, I am successful, I got it all together. Hmm. but is that really true? And is that the lordship of Jesus Christ? Or is that me operating my own kingdom? Real quick, as we close, I wanna look at the, the three characters of the prodigal son um, in mind of uh, our mission and our values that we've just gone through over the last six weeks. Let's go um, to slide 13. No, slide 12, slide 12, okay? Here's our mission, everyone, every day, helping others experience the life-giving freedom of Jesus. All right, so let's think about the prodigal son, we've got the father, and we've got the older brother. So the mission is helping others experience life-giving freedom in Jesus. Now, the prodigal son isn't doing that when he's off doing his own thing. But when he comes in contrition and confesses to the father, at that point in the story, he is at a point where his life can make a change that in turn can help him tell a story about grace and forgiveness and redemption to others about how the father forgave him and loved him. Confession brings us to that place. The father, the father is helping his son, even in the point, think about this, even in the point of saying, okay, son, here's the inheritance. You want to go? Go. Because if the father had been controlling his own kingdom, he might go, no, no way. Not, not let you do that. Not, let you, not until I die you're getting the inheritance. No, 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 no. I am gonna control you. I am gonna keep you in the house. I am gonna make you do this. And I wonder if the father knew that what the, 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 the lost son needed was some pig slop. Hmm. So maybe even in giving his son the freedom to fail, He was helping his son make the progress he needed to find life-giving experience with Jesus. The the old brother, I don't see the old brother really helping anybody find life-giving freedom. Let's go to our our values, if we could. Next slide. Who's making progress? The prodigal son is making progress as he contrition and confession He is going to progress. He is going to understand grace and forgiveness. He is now at a place where he can make restitution and can grow spiritually through his failings. The father is making progress because he didn't expect perfection. He wants to, through grace and forgiveness, help his son grow. The older brother... Well, the older brother, he's trying to do everything perfectly and manage his life and manage everything. But he didn't know his father's heart. You know, Refuge. The prodigal finds refuge in the father and the father is providing refuge for the son. The older brother is the one who is rejecting. He didn't understand his father's heart. So he didn't even understand the refuge that he had and the many over me. <laughs> Again, we've got, we've got the father who is, is looking at both of his sons and trying to love and show his love and mercy and grace to both of them, even though they're both very different. And even though he's maybe treated them differently, he's doing it because he's trying to understand what each of them needs. The prodigal is at a point in his contrition and confession where he can now stop looking at himself and start saying, I need to do my life differently and live for others. The older brother, thinking about me. Why didn't I get it? Why didn't I get the inheritance? Why didn't I get the party? Why don't I get the fatted calf? Resentment, rejection. So, I leave this morning reminding us that so often I I can be the lost son or we can be like the older brother who's trying to manage life but doesn't understand the heart of the father. Confession, contrition, is the process by which we progress spiritually. Admit that we aren't perfect. It's the process by which we understand true spiritual refuge in the love and grace of our brothers and sisters in Christ. It is the point at which all of a sudden we begin to be a blessing to many rather than struggling with the me. So we're gonna push into this more and more as we figure out how do we do this and how do we do it well?